tonight I'm going to be talking about a different kind of anointing. And I can tell you there's people in this room who need this anointing. And it's the anointing to worship. Now, a lot of people don't quite understand the power of worship because through the years, worship has kind of taken on a different a different phase than it has in times past. But tonight we're gonna look at the power of worship and what happens in a room. So I want you to ask yourself this question before I get started. How many of you consider yourself a worshiper? And you, don't, you can raise your hand, you don't have to raise your hand, but you consider yourself a worshiper. Now what, what does that mean? Does that mean that I sing songs? Does that mean that I clap my hands? Does that mean that I close my eyes and lift my hand occasionally? What does it mean if I consider myself a worshiper? Does that, does that mean I participated in the worship? Or does that mean that I can worship all by myself? Does that mean that I can worship when no one's looking or when everybody's looking? What does that mean? So I want you to kind of hold that question in your mind for a while. Am I really a worshiper? Am I giving God my best worship? Have I been anointed to worship? Or is worship just another form of entertainment for me? Is it something that I enjoy watching, enjoy listening to, and enjoy, you know, the same thing I would enjoy a, a good gospel concert? Is worship something that I enjoy and I, and I think it's beautiful? Or is, is worship something I'm engaged in? So that's a great, great question. Now, perhaps all of you in this room, or if not all of you, most of you, have heard the story of Mary breaking the alabaster box uh, at the feet and over the head of Jesus. And I love that story, but sometimes I think that the way we've portrayed that story, I love every song I've ever heard about the alabaster box. I love those songs. But I think that sometimes we get this filter in our head when we think about this story and we kind of imagine that we're in this candlelit room and there's all of this soft, beautiful music playing and that we're in this highly romantic moment with God as we, you know, it's like, it's like angels are fluttering and the oil is pouring and the room is fragrant and it's like this beautiful scene and there's nothing wrong with thinking about that. But what I want you to understand is that this anointing that Mary did was was one of the most radical things that had ever been done in the New Testament. It was one of the most risky and radical expressions of worship that anyone had ever done. I mean, this equates with Jeremiah, make, or, or Ezekiel rather, making a hole in the side of his house and crawling through it to preach a sermon. I mean, this is that radical. It was, it was disdained by almost everyone who saw it. Even the disciples could couldn't wrap their head around what was happening in this moment. As a matter of fact, the only person who really got it was Jesus, and everybody else criticized what was going on in this room. So there's this scene of this desperate worshiper, this woman who valued sitting at the feet of Jesus more than public opinion. And that's a great question for us tonight. Do I value, does my worship take me in? Does my worship bring me to the feet of Jesus, and do I value sitting at the feet of Jesus more than I value what other people are going to think about me? Do you know how many people can't worship because of what someone thinks about them? They're going to think I'm this. They're going to think I'm that, or that's going to be too embarrassing. And so there's a lot of reasons why we talk ourselves out of sitting at the feet of Jesus, but when you get desperate, things change. 
It's one thing to worship because you like it. It's another thing to worship because if you don't, you just might die. It's one thing to worship because everybody, I could see I'm going to have to work hard tonight. I could see you. You don't know where I'm going. I know where I'm going, but I can see I'm going to have to pull you uphill before we get there. I can tell that. That's all right. I'm, I'm ready to go there. All right. So I, I, you got to understand there is a difference in somebody who just wants to sing and somebody that feels like their life is falling apart. And if Jesus does not lay his hand on my head, I don't know if I can get up another day. I don't know if my family's going to make it. There's a difference in a worshiper and a desperate worshiper who has to get to Jesus before they go home. So here's a woman who pours out this costly perfume while everyone else was pouring out criticism on her praise. Here is a woman who has moved herself into a place of extravagant worship while those in the room are actually trying to throw her out of the room. They're literally trying to get rid of her. They're embarrassed by her and they're trying to move her out of the room while she is offering the most costly thing she has ever offered in her life and poured it out on the master's, on the master's head. Now today, people view worship in all kinds of ways. Some people, worship is just mere entertainment. They enjoy it, they clap their hands, it makes them feel good and they go home. Some people worship because it makes them feel better, because that's what their life is all about, feeling better. And, and they need to feel better. They need another endorphin fix to feel better. So some people worship only because it makes them feel better, and that is the reason they worship. Others worship because it's the tradition. I mean, you know, we go to the house of God. We have to sing three songs. We have to give a testimony. We have to take up an offering, and we have to, we have to listen to a sermon, go by the altar, and go home. That's what we call traditional worship. And some people, they worship because it is tradition. It gives them this nostalgic view of the past. Man, I remember the good old days when we sang that song and, and the glory fell. And so worship becomes this traditional thing. But there are some who understand that God is calming this earth, seeking for true worshipers who can worship him in spirit and in truth. Not only are you looking for God, but God is looking for for you. Not only are you looking for God to come down and sit, God is looking for a chair to sit down in. So the Bible says that God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Some of you understand that if a whole room can corporately worship, you can change a moment from a visitation to a habitation. Some understand that if the whole room. I'm not talking about one or two, but if it ever catches on, if the fire ever starts here and goes across there, some understand that when you fill a room with worshipers who are seeking God, that angels come into that room and they walk among you. Some understand that people will be healed before the altar call is even given. They're going to be healed. That people are going to get saved before a sermon is even preached. The worship itself will change 
change and shift the atmosphere to a point that God will start moving before anybody has operated in their spiritual gift, before anybody has reached out with their anointed hand, that the glory of God will settle in a room and people's lives will be changed. And those who understand that, understand the importance of every time, and I gotta tell you, there's a discipline in this, that every time I worship, I have to forget who's watching. I have to forget, even sometimes, I have to forget not to read and clap and sing, but I have to get lost in his presence. I have to push myself beyond the, the veil of my flesh, and I have to get into a spiritual realm where God can minister not only to me, but through me. Some understand that you will change not only the room, but this woman's single act of worship literally changed the world. Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached in the entire world, from this point on, the story of this woman's act of worship is going to be told. This woman's worship has inspired millions in every tongue and in every tribe and in every church around the world. One single desperate act of praise shifted an atmosphere to a point that everybody from that point on was changed. Now, now, when you get into this story of Mary's alabaster anointing or breaking the alabaster box, sometimes it is misunderstood because there are two different instances, some would even say three, where this happened and people think that it's always the same instant. Well, it kind of sounds the same because both men's house, both of their names are Simon. One is a Pharisee, the, upper is a, the other is a leper who was healed. But one of these incidences takes place, one of these anointings takes place in Capernaum. The other anointing takes place in Bethany. One takes place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. One takes place at the end of Jesus' ministry. One takes place while John the Baptist Baptist is still alive, and the other takes place after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. So you have two different anointings, and to understand the impact of this powerful anointing, I want us to go through these stories together, okay? So the first one is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when John the Baptist was still alive, and we're going to start in Luke chapter 7. So this is at the house of a Pharisee. Now, now there was a lot of people that invited Jesus there because they were suspicious. They invited Jesus. The Pharisees were always coming out and talking to Jesus. None of them ever wanted to be a disciple. None of them ever wanted to press in and become a part of his group, but they always liked to keep their eye on him. So it is quite, it, it isn't surprising. And I know that the, the argument could be, well, this Pharisee was a follower of Christ. That's why he had him in his house for dinner. But when you read the whole story, you'll realize that this Pharisee brought him there to judge him and actually began to judge him in the middle of this spiritual moment. So let's start with the first time this happened, and I want you to look at the elements. We're in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Verse 37, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now notice this. This is different from the next anointing. Because this woman who came in the room is a sinner. And everybody knows she's a sinner. Now, I don't know how they knew she was a sinner, but this is a woman with a reputation. 
this no-name woman, they didn't know her name, but they knew not to go near her. They didn't know her name, but they didn't, but they knew that she had a reputation in the city, even though they did not want to be associated with her. Thank you so much for supporting our ministry. If this has blessed you, please say a prayer for us. And if you would like to give, we have four ways that you can do that. You can give online at briancutshaw.com, or if you're a PayPal user, just PayPal us at Church Trainer. Or you can also give through the mail at P.O. Box 267, Georgetown, Tennessee, 37336. Or if you're a Venmo user, you can Venmo us also at Church Trainer. Thank you, and God bless you, and may the Lord multiply your seed. Now back to Hope in the Word. So get this. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat down at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. All right, so here's something that you need to understand. Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee. Now you think this Pharisee loved Jesus, wanted to hear the gospel, but listen to the rest of the story, get this. So when this Pharisee begins to criticize this woman, and he's actually criticizing Jesus, you know what this Pharisee says? Well, if he was a prophet, he would have known she was a sinner. So that just discounts him. Now I've got all the evidence I need on this man because if he had been a real prophet, he would have known this was a sinner woman. And now I can go tell the rest of the Pharisees, we got him, we caught, we got him right where we want him now because he can't be a prophet. Now listen to this. So here is, here is where the, the, the story really gets interesting. Verse 44, then Jesus turned to this woman and he calls the Pharisee out by name. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. Oh, this man loved Jesus, and he didn't wash his feet when he always washed people's feet. You gave, he said, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time she came in. You did not anoint my head, but this woman has anointed my feet with a fragrant oil. And so he is telling us, first of all, in this passage of Luke, that here is a scene at a Pharisee's house and a woman, a sinner woman is looking for Jesus. She comes in the house and begins to anoint Jesus and Jesus takes up for this woman and not only that, Jesus forgives her of her sins. Now you gotta get this. Jesus forgives this woman's sin because she changed an atmosphere. Now here's the first thing you need to understand about worship. The first spirit that you will encounter as a worship is a pharisaical spirit. The very first spirit that will keep you from worshiping is a judgmental spirit. Now look at what the judgmental spirit was doing. First of all, notice he, now this is not the scene where they criticized her because of the cost. No, that's later. That was the disciples later on. There's no one that's talking about the oil in this one. No one's talking about the money here. There's only one criticism and the criticism is on the worshiper and the one she is worshiping. And he gives this criticism. How can this woman come in here and mess up this moment? Does she not know that she's in a Pharisee's house? 
house? Does she not know she's in a holy house? How dare a sinner woman come looking for Jesus in a holy place and mess up our moment the way she has? How dare this woman come in and tear up the room the way she has torn up the room? And then this pharisaical spirit begins to judge Jesus. Well, if he had have known. You know how you know that there's this Pharisee spirit talking to you? Because it's you, you're going to hear him say things like this. Well, it don't take all that. You know, all that's not necessary to get to Jesus. That's the, that's the way the Pharisaical spirit talks. That's the judgmental spirit. That's not the way a worship talks. That's not the way an angel talks. That's a Pharisaical spirit that says, it, it doesn't take all of that. Now, you know what? You can get to God without doing all that. You'll hear them say things like, God doesn't require all of that. That Macau spirit, that, that spirit of, of Macau gets on them. And she says, how dare you get that undignified? Oh, David the king, how dare you get that undignified? And you don't have to shake your head. You don't have to identify yourself. And please, by all means, don't raise your hand. But you know you've heard that spirit before. You know you've heard that. You know he's spoken to your head and said, oh, if you worship, people are going to talk about you. If you worship, people are going to say something about you. If you get out there and try to dance, if you get out there and raise your hands, it doesn't take all that laying around on the floor. It doesn't take all that bowing down. It doesn't take all that running and jumping and hollering and screaming. It doesn't take all that. How do you know what it takes for a desperate person to reach God? How do you know what it takes to get the attention of a How do you know what God is requiring from them? How do you know what test they are passing? How do you know what curse they are breaking? How do you know what filth they have walked out of? How do you know how far they have come just to be able to? You don't know their story. You don't know the desperation. You don't know that they slept in their car last night and didn't have anything to eat all day. And here you sit with a fed, with a full fed face and a fat belly, and you want to judge somebody that says, if I don't get to Jesus, I'll never get the house. If I don't get to Jesus, I'll never get the car. If I don't get to Jesus, I'll never be able to have anything. I don't care what's going on, but I've got to get to Jesus. I don't care who points. I don't care who lurks. I don't care who jeers. I don't care who laughs. I don't care who smirks. I've got to get to Jesus any way that I can get to Jesus. If you've ever been in a desperate place like that before, I want you to clap your hands and thank God he brought you through it. Well, hallelujah. Thank God he brought you through it. Now here's the second anointing. When you get to the second anointing, all of the gospels talk about it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John, all of them recorded, but Matthew, Mark, and John record the details, the most of the second anointing. Now, the second alabaster anointing takes place two days before the Passover. Now, John chapter 12, when you read John chapter 12, he's going to tell you when they came into Bethany, it was six days before the Passover. But then he's going to tell you later on when they ate the supper that it was two days before the Passover. So here this first anointing is taking place by a sinner woman. The second anointing is taking place by a woman who is not a sinner, but she does something very similar. Now look at this. Let's go to Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse three. And being in Bethany, 
at the house of Simon the leper, not the Pharisee, different guy. This is a guy that had Jesus to his house because he was healed of leprosy. Now, we don't know which one of those guys it was because Jesus healed more than one person of leprosy, but here's a man that has Jesus to his house because now he can. Uh-huh. Anybody remember a time that you couldn't invite Jesus to your house, but now you can? Anybody remember a time that you didn't want Jesus to come to your house, but now he can? Anybody ever been too embarrassed to bring Jesus in your house, but now he can? So here is a man who, is, who has uh, invited Jesus to his house because he's been healed. Being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he sat at the table and a woman having an alabaster flask, very costly, of oil of spikenard. She broke the flask. Now that's interesting. She broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some in the room who were indignant among themselves, saying, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. Now understand this. One denarii is a day's wage. If you, if, you, if you look at the denarii, one denarii is a day's wage, so this is a one year's wage, almost a year's wage. This woman could have started a business with this amount. She could have done so many things with this, so the disciples, in particularly, they are criticizing her, but John actually says that after the disciples criticized her, when you read that account, he said Judas is the one that spoke up and objected the most. And then he gives you insight to Judas. And he says, but Judas was a thief. Because he said Judas had Jesus' ministry, ministry uh, a bucket or basket, I think, or box is what he called it. He had Jesus' ministry box, and he had been taking money out of the box. And John calls him out. Now, John was there, so John would have known that. So John calls Judas out and says that Judas did not care about the poor, but Judas cared about one thing, that she had taken so much money that he was trying to pocket. He was wondering, why didn't you give us the money instead of giving us the worship? Why didn't you give us the money instead of anointing the master so that we could have done something else with the money? Notice verse 6. It's so important. Jesus said, let her alone. Everybody say that. Let her alone. One more time, let her alone. Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whatever you wish, you may, you may do good to them, but me you do not have always. She has done what, was, what she could and has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Surely I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial. So I want you to get this before we get into all the details of the story. This is a woman that is not called a sinner. She is anointing Jesus with an alabaster box. The value of that alabaster box is told to us here. She's in the house of Simon the leper, and it's two days before Jesus is crucified, and Jesus is saying that she's anointing him for his burial that's about to happen two days later. Now, now that we have the details, let's break this down a little bit. Here is what's going on. The disciples, when they first met Jesus, had left their jobs and their families to follow him. Does he, do you remember when you first met Jesus? Do you remember how in love you were when you first met Jesus? I want to tell you, my first date with my redhead was at a Perry Stone revival. And I can remember when, my, when I remember it went seven weeks. And I was so happy about that. I wanted to go 14 weeks. 
But I can tell you, I knew I was in love because I was forgetting things and losing my mind. I was giddy. I was silly. I was just, I mean, I couldn't wait to get around her. I didn't care. I was ready to fight for her. I didn't care what, I mean, you want to say something against that redhead, buddy. I was ready to come out of my skin at you. That's what love feels like. But you know what? That's the same thing worship feels like. I remember when I fell in love with Jesus and I could not wait to hear another sermon and I could not wait to sing another song and I could not wait to get in another altar call. I could not wait to get in his presence because it was the glory of God that I craved and hungered for. And you know what else happened to me? I got giddy. I got silly. I forgot about things. If the Lord wanted me to run, I'd run. If he wanted me to flop, I'd flop. If he wanted me to frail, I I mean, nothing was too much. He could have asked me to do anything and I would have done it because I could not wait to get in the presence of God. These disciples have left everything. They've walked off from their jobs. They've walked off from family ties to follow the ministry of Jesus. And in the beginning, don't you know they were washing his feet? Don't you know they were serving his food? Don't you know they were doing everything they could do to help Jesus? But on this day, uh uh-huh, on this day, they had gotten so busy being busy on another routine day of Jesus, another healing. Oh, that was wonderful. Another miracle. Oh, that was great. You should have seen the one last week. This last week was good, but now this week is even better. That's what church feels like sometimes. Man, you got to, last week was great, but we need another one, right? Let's, let's do another one. And the disciples had got so busy doing the routine with Jesus that after a while, It seemed like it was no big deal. This program is brought to you by the partners of Brian Cutshaw and Church Trainer Ministries. Please help us pray that the Lord will continue to send us more partners so we can expand his kingdom around the world.